Hello. I would have first seen the five doctors probably in November or December 1984, very shortly after I discovered the program on Channel 21, my local PBS station covering Long Island, New York. I would have seen most of the four episodes aired in four-part format over four weeknights. It was the first time that I would have seen the first, second, third, and fourth doctors, and watching the five doctors as an embryonic fan was certainly a major step in getting me to where I am today. Now, in early 1985, my local PBS station decided on a weeknight to air all of the five doctors in the same night during pledge drive season. Probably were making money hand over fist at the time. In fact, my family very shortly thereafter, or I should say my single mother, subscribed to Channel 21 on my behalf. We got a monthly listings magazine, maybe a tote bag. That was about it. Not a whole lot of membership swag. We were not giving at the level where you would get a disappearing TARDIS mug or a copy of a couple of novelizations, that's for sure. But it was the thought that counts. Thanks, Mom. So on that night, early 1985, I decided to tape The Five Doctors and I was going to have all four episodes on the same one VHS tape that my dad gave me to tape Doctor Who on, and of course, who knows how many episodes I taped over on Lost Forever on that tape, although of course, 40 years later, it doesn't matter, as Pluto TV shows Doctor Who in a pretty much complete cycle every five days on a dedicated 24-hour-a-day Doctor Who channel, and of course, I have all the classic series on DVD anyway, and I can watch whenever I want. But it was a big deal in 1985 for a tween boy to have a VHS tape with the five Doctors on it. Now my friend Stephen, one of my two friends who got me into Doctor Who, and is still a friend today, made a joke with me the day before in school. He said, you'd better be careful. He said to the effect of, you'd better make sure that you run the tape for long enough to include the PBS pledge breaks in between each episode. He said, if you're not careful, your videotape is going to cut out at the exact moment where Rassilon tells Barusa to put on the ring. He's going to put on the ring, and then your tape is going to cut out, and you're never going to see the end. Ha ha, I said. Well, knowing that the four parts of the five doctors would run for about 90 minutes, and knowing there was about a 15-minute pledge break in between each of the four episodes, I set my tape for two and a half hours. Then the next morning before going to school, I eagerly ran downstairs to the VCR, and I checked the tape. Now, of course, this was one of those old-fashioned top-loading VCRs with a foot counter telling you where you were, and the tape started at zero. I fast-forwarded every 100 feet, and I watched a scene at 100 feet, 200 feet, 300. One of those scenes was Richard Herndall biting eagerly into a slice of pineapple. I remember that. And then I got to the end of the two-and-a-half-hour block of recording, and this is what I heard and saw. Don't listen to them, Lord Rassilon. President Barusa speaks the truth. You believe that Barusa deserves the immortality he seeks. Indeed I do. He shall have it. Take the You claim immortality, Lord Barusa. You will not turn back. Never. Then put on the ring. 
Others have come to claim immortality through the ages. It was given to them as it shall be given to you. Now, I can't prove that my friend Stephen, age 12, had anything to do with calling Channel 21 and telling them to stagger or delay the pledge breaks so that my tape would cut out exactly when he said it would cut out as a joke. I can't prove that, of course. Direction point! Direction point! A Doctor Who Podcast Network. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the podcast taking you through the world of the Doctor Who novelizations put out by Target Books from 1973 onward in publication order. We're a member of the Direction Point Doctor Who Podcast Network. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. We have arrived at the Five Doctors. I love the Five Doctors. I'm not positive that Five Doctors is not the best of the classic TV series all 26 years. I'm not positive, but we're going to explore that over this episode and the next two weeks after this. That's right, we are going to be devoting three weeks to the Five Doctors. This week, I am thrilled to be joined by James Couray Smith, a prolific Doctor Who nonfiction writer. We have a lot to talk about today. I'm also going to break down the first seven chapters of the 1983 Terrence Dix novelization of The Five Doctors. Next week, I am joined by a member of the Doctor Who family, and a novelist, and an actor. I will introduce that guest at the very end of this episode. But for the time being, I will leave you in a little bit of suspense, just like my famous 1985 Five Doctors PBS Pledge Drive-related Doctor Who tape malfunction. Next week, we also have a three-guest panel breaking down the topic of whether or not Five Doctors on TV is, indeed, the greatest of all time. Three great friends of the program should be joining me for that panel. Graham Burke and Stacey Smith and David Barsky. Next week, I will also break down the last five chapters of the novelization. And then the week after that, in a bonus episode in between the 1983 and 1984 novelizations, I will be having a long-form discussion with a best-selling novelist and a longtime Doctor Who fan, and we will, of course, make time to talk about the five Doctors in that episode as well. So we are on the sixth of ten consecutive Peter Davison novelizations put out by Target Books across 1983 and 1984, before Target started dipping into their back catalog and publishing a lot of old first and second Doctor adventures as novelizations for the first time. But those 10 books will take 12 weeks on this program because we're going to spend three weeks on the Five Doctors. That's how much I love Five Doctors, and hopefully you do too. Before we turn to this week's episode, I do want to issue three different acknowledgments of error. I had mentioned on a previous episode my belief that Alan Dean Foster had ghostwritten the novelization of Star Trek The Motion Picture, That was a half-formed memory that was unfortunately incorrect. Alan Dean Foster does have story credit on Star Trek The Motion Picture, the movie script. And Alan Dean Foster also novelized the first 
J.J. Abrams in the Star Trek movie, but Alan Dean Foster did not in fact write the 1979 novelization of Star Trek The Motion Picture. That was all Gene Roddenberry. Secondly, I will point out that Pluto TV is not just available in the United States. I am informed that it is available in Canada as well. And lastly, I want to apologize to Jim Sangster. Jim had recorded a terrific musical number for me to accompany last week's episode 80, Arc of Infinity. When I first released that episode last Sunday, I had forgotten to include his track. If you downloaded the episode starting on Monday, the day after my typical release date, you would have heard the song. But to my prolific first day downloaders, you would not have heard it. So I'm going to include it once again. This is the great Jim Sangster on musical accompaniment. When you run away from Gallifrey Heading to Amsterdam And when Omega is taunting ya Hiding in Amsterdam I can't wait until the Ergon Frills Made up of eggs and ham Why does Nyssa keep us learning? That's why Tegan is returning So until that day we may Keep on running from Gallifrey Speaking of Pluto TV, it is now time to take a short break. I'm going to see what random episode Pluto happens to be showing on this Saturday late afternoon slash early evening, and then I will report back. A Whovian and a Nuvian walk into a TARDIS and explore every episode of the classic Doctor Who series. Join me, podcaster John S. Drew, and me, writer-editor Jim Beard, as we take apart each story starting from the very beginning in 1963. And join us on our Facebook page and Twitter, where we continue the discussion with you with historical artifacts from British papers of the time. The Doctor's Beard Podcast, released every Saturday around tea time on your favorite podcasting app. And we'll see you in time and space. You're listening to Doctor Who Literature. Keep turning the pages. Ooh, it's Planet of the Spiders Part 3. Love Planet of the Spiders. I know there has been a collective fan consciousness over the years, which says things such as two episodes too long, or overly padded, or the acting and the lighting in the Metabilis 3 sequences is just terrible. I just don't see the story that way. First of all, we're talking about a story that's almost 50 years old, so of course the production values are not going to hold up to our eyes. But this is Barry Letts pretty much putting a capstone on his era. It's all the themes and issues that he was so interested in, and the passion is obvious on screen. You have Mike Yates with the first real sustained character arc in Doctor Who. There had been returning characters before, such as Professor Travers, but Mike Yates is the first character to go through a real arc with emotional ups and downs and betrayal and heroism and redemption, much of which is largely due to this story. There's Tommy, who I find a very interesting character. 
And as a footnote, in the Paul Cornell 1996 New Adventure Happy Endings, future Mike Yates, circa 2010, has a partner, and that partner's name is Tom. Wonder if it's the same Tommy from this story. And of course, you have the idea that Barry Letts has surrounded John Pertwee in his final episode with actors that he had worked with on Doctor Who before. It's the final Doctor Who appearance for Walter Randall, who had been playing secondary villains going all the way back to season one and the Aztecs in 1964. And you have Kismet Delgado, the widow of Roger, playing the voice of one of the spiders. Just a very fun story. Episode 3 does not have the 15-minute long car chase from Episode 2. It doesn't have the regeneration. And it is the first scene set on Metabilis 3, where the acting is perhaps not as great as we're accustomed to. But, again, I always have time for Planet of the Spiders, and I'm very happy that it was randomly on when I turned on the TV late this afternoon. Meanwhile, we are several minutes into this episode, and we have a lot more to get to. James Kure smith is going to join me after the break, and then we'll take a look at the first seven chapters of the Terrence Sticks novelization of The Five Doctors, and then, of course, the following two weeks, we're going to keep coming back to this, one of, if not my absolute, favorites of all time. Let's get to it. I'm happy to be joined today by one of the most prestigious guests that I've ever had. He has written at least a dozen nonfiction books. He has written audio short audio plays and short stories. I'll say that again. He has written audios for Big Finish. He has written short stories. He has written several of the Black Archives, including the second one, The Massacre, which talk about jumping in on a hard topic. And he has also written the DVD info text for many Doctor Who classic stories. It is James Coure Smith. James, welcome to the program. Hello. Uh, I don't think I've ever been described as prestigious before. <laughs> Compared to my meager resume, you are prestigious. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the way that you and I uh, started communicating a couple of months ago is because I'm a subscriber to your Substack, Psychic Paper, which every time I read it, absolutely knocks my socks off. Oh, bless you. I had released my episode on The Visitation about three months ago, and somewhere during that episode, I started parroting this line about how it's very unlike anything that Eric Sayward ever wrote afterwards, and it was unique. And you, a couple of days later, wrote a substack on the same story, talking about how it is exactly like every Eric Sayward story ever written. So I immediately recorded a retraction the following week, the following week, and I linked to your Substack, and I am completely in awe. <laughs> I mean, I, I hadn't heard what, what you'd done when I wrote it. It's it's a bee I've had in my bonnet for a while um, about that, but I had heard other episodes of this podcast, um, but I'm a bit of a mayfly when it comes to podcasts. I sort of, there's so many I want to listen to. It's, you know, oh, I'm going to, this bit about that and that and moving up and down and and not listening to all of anything really uh just the episodes i want to hear the most of the podcasts i want to listen to but it was that john arnold sent me the the one with the retraction in and he was just like 
He's like, people are being nice about you. They don't know you, do they? Um, <laughs> um, no, yeah, I, I had John on a couple of weeks ago. He's a terrific guest. He's brilliant. I, uh, we, uh, I saw him on Sunday because um, they had a screening of Spear from Space at the British Film Institute. Um, and um, I'm a member there, so um, I we went down and just watched it on Sunday afternoon in the small BFI cinema, which is fantastic. And you had also recently done a Substack newsletter on Spearhead from Space as well, so that's certainly getting right into your wheelhouse. Well, that was I wrote that because of the screening. Um, it was like a tie to tie into that screening. And you've also covered a lot of season 20. You have done excellent pieces on both Earthshock and the Five Doctors, slash, I should say, the Six Doctors, and I was originally hoping to have you on my Earthshock show, and the timing didn't work out, so I have you on for the Five Doctors instead. But we can certainly talk about any number of topics today. I was on a beach when you needed to record Earthshock. Uh, yes, and you could record from the beach. I'm planning to record my Planet of Fire episode on the beach when I'm in Los Angeles, but it's not always the best audio quality. <laughs> How did you get into the Black Archives? Um... I um I was kind of I was there before it started. Um, Stuart Douglas, the publisher, is is a friend of mine, and so is Phil, the kind of founding editor. And I was not involved in the kind of discussions about the idea, but pretty much as soon as the idea came up, um, I was one of the people that they talked to to say we've had this idea. Do you think it'll work? Is it something that can happen? Do Would you like to write one? Do you know anyone that would like to write one? And all that kind of thing. So it, it was it was really sort of, yeah, I was kind of there before day one, which is, you know, the only way you can wind up writing the second one. Let's face it. <laughs> I have the Massacre of Black Archive ebook edition on my Kindle. And that, of course, is a fascinating story because it was a troubled TV Genesis, and then you have the John Lucarati novelization 20 years later, which bears only a passing resemblance to the televised story, and then you have the fact that it's very unique in a Doctor Who format, and that William Hartnell is kind of written out of the middle two episodes, Stephen sort of becomes the main character, and then the last 10 minutes is a marked tonal shift from the rest. That must have been a lot of fertile ground. What, what was your into that story for your Black Archive? Well, it's, it's funny because I actually wasn't meant to be doing the massacre. It was that what I was actually commissioned to write was the Space Museum because I absolutely love the Space Museum. I think it's chronically underrated. And um, when I did the production notes for the DVD release 10, 12 years ago, whenever it was, I interviewed Glyn Jones for that. And I had quite a lot of material that I couldn't use. So my idea was I'd do a book on the Space Museum using the interview with Glenn as the core of it. But I did part of a draft and just it just kind of didn't work, but didn't work. Um, and so I kind of phoned Phil up and was like, I can't make this work. Can I, can I change stories? And he said, yeah, you can change stories, but really it should be a Hartnell because – one of the reasons why we wanted you to do the second one is, uh, I mean, this was really, really early in the process. It wasn't like, this was years before the deadline. I, was, I wasn't doing it with a week to go. And, um, 
And it was like, it should be hard one. What do you want to do? And my, my postgrad thesis was on, um, was on the massacre, the event and, uh, sort of contemporary cultural responses to the massacre, uh, sort of pamphlet culture and uh, Christopher Marlowe play and that kind of thing. And so that was the thing I'd got loads of historical background on. And it just occurred to me that uh, I have a friend who's a um, very high-powered academic, and um, he ha- ha- one of his advice, one of the b- bits of advice he always gives to PhD students is do the thing that only you can do. That's, you know, if you're going to do a PhD, if you're going to write a thesis, do the thing that only you can do. And it just struck me that I was possibly the only person who already had all of the research on the period and knew enough about Doctor Who and 60s television generally to write that particular book about that particular story, if that makes sense. And so I thought, okay, I'll take that advice. I'll do the thing that only, write the thing that only you can write. And I just sketched out a chapter plan for it and and then just went away and did it. Um, so that's kind of how the book came about. In terms of the story, I read The Target, um, which I got from Redditch, Worcestershire County Library, Redditch probably a couple of months after it came out in the mid-1980s in paperback. And then I would have heard the MP3s of the story in the mid-90s, just when the Graham Strong audios were discovered, but before they were sort of being professionally released. And I remember being really fascinated by Pixley's archive in DWM, which is roundabout issue 184 somewhere in that that kind of run and it was just this combination of all these things that already interested me i struggled processing the massacre for the longest time and i'll I'll tell you why because i got the novelization as well late 80s probably shortly after it came to the states and it's a lush evocative novelization but number one it is kind of choked in run-on sentences so it's not the smoothest read in the world And then once you know a little bit about the massacre on TV, you realize the novelization is not a fair representation of what actually happened. So as you say, when the Graham Strong audios came to light, there were online transcripts in 1995 quality HTML, which I was able to read. (laughs) There was an early website called Behind the Sofa, and they had the transcripts of all the Hartnell and throughout a missing episode novelization. So I'm sitting there on a break in law school, age 23, and I'm reading The Myth Makers. And I come across for the very first time the infamous part three cliffhanger, woe to Troy. Well, it's a bit late to say woe to the horse. Like, what kind of a cliffhanger is this? <laughs> and woe to the house of Priam. Woe to the Trojan. I think it's a bit late to say woe to the horse. I've just given instructions to have it brought into the city. Yeah. 
the massacre is hard to process as a transcript because there's so much dialogue and there are so many characters, many of whom are tertiary characters. Like there's this incredible scene with Catherine de Medici and one of her henchmen in part four, but unless you know who they are in real life and there's no doctor or Steven anywhere near that scene, it can be a little bit hard to follow, at least for the way that I process information as a transcript. And then when Napster became a thing in the year 2000, while most tweens and teens were using Napster to download chart-topping hits, your humble podcast host was using Napster to download Doctor Who 1960s missing episode audios. So I was able to hear Marco Polo that way with the help of the the behind-the-sofa transcripts. And I could never finish the massacre as an audio because, again, you don't know who's speaking when. There are so many characters who are played by you know, one-time recurring mm-hmm. actors whose voice you're not going to be familiar with. Like, there's not a lot of Eric Thompson or Andre Moran in, is it Andre Morel, sorry, in other Doctor Who episodes, so I didn't know the voices. Like, I don't know who's talking. I don't know what they're saying. It wasn't until I finally got the Loose Cannon reconstruction, which is not based on any telesnaps, but rather is a very painstaking collage of photographs of the actors in other things with period costume photoshopped on. It wasn't until I finally saw the loose cannon about 12 years ago that it all made sense to me. And then I realized how incredible it was, but it's definitely not a user-friendly story in its various surviving formats. I mean, it's one of the things I kind of look at in the book is, you know, it is undeniable that a quarter of Doctor Who's audience disappeared across those four episodes you know and it's like <clears throat> i think you know i was saying in the book is if that's a coincidence fine it's coincidence don't read the rest of this chapter but let's assume that this isn't a coincidence what what might the reasons the reasons be um and it is i think it is it's a it's a frustrating and alienating and difficult piece of television and i think sometimes that's i think that's not necessarily a good idea um for a you know a children's adventure series about a wizard in the box (laughs) (laughs) what what doctor who fundamentally is um and but again i find the paradox of that really interesting i find the fact that it's a sort of about this kind of event of extraordinary human horror um, and been played very seriously and with sort of great emotion uh, that, uh, you know, I find that it works as well as it does is, is really fascinating to me. You know, there's this thing of, I'm interested in, 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 you know, the reason why I do the stuff I do is because I like to take things to pieces and try and work out how they work or how they don't work or, you know how they should work or whatever, and um, and I just felt that with the massacre that you know this whole thing of there being the the book and the TV version being very different and them being contested, and also it kind of being about contestation in in a sense, and I just really felt that it was just really rich book to it was a you no know, it was a rich thing to look at and you know it was relatively easy, you know, you know, cause there's just so many things that, to, to pour in, to look at the things that, you know, Lucarotti must have read and 
just it felt like a it felt like a real opportunity to do something that people hadn't really done in Doctor Who writing before, and to sort of really bring the the weight of the historical material I was familiar with to the television material I was familiar with, and sort of try and write something that was about the history, both the historical that they made, but also like the historical that they're in, the 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 historical set in early 1966 where the production team at war with itself you know john wiles was trying to get hartnell driven out of the program and you have the prospect of this meaty double role for hartnell playing an antagonist i was at the first li who convention in 2013 and i went to a missing episodes panel and the moderator of the panel said that the first missing episode that he wants back before any other is the massacre part two because he wants to see what hartnell is like as the abbot of amboise well the kicker is doesn't have any dialogue in part two exactly he has the part one cliffhanger line one 17 second film shot is what he's in in part two and he doesn't speak and then in part three, he's only in two or three scenes before his character is killed. At, at one point, I did a count. He has less than 100 words as the Abbot total hmm. in the entire story, which plays against expectations. And, of course, in the novelization, which is Luca Roddy telling the story he wanted to tell, where there's a much more ecumenical and happy ending, Hartnell has a lot more to do as a conscious double role. Where on, on TV, it's an odd curiosity and exactly not what you would be expecting. I mean, again, you know, one of the things I kind of explore in the book is I, I feel that I came to the conclusion that Lucarotti and Tosh had irreconcilable ambitions for the for the serial, and that that was the the source of their conflict. You know, that 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 Lucarotti wanted to write a story that was like the Prince and the Pauper or the Enemy of the World. You know, where there are two characters and they impersonate each other, and that's what his novelization is whereas that's not tosh's story at all you know in tosh's story the doctor does not impersonate the abbot the abbot does not impersonate the doctor the doctor seems unaware that there is an abbot let alone that he looks like him you know and those are the the doubling of the doctor and the abbot in the tv version is solely about confusing Stephen and through Stephen confusing the audience. You know, it's not about the Doctor or the Abbot or their roles at, at all. It's kind of entirely external facing. Um, and, you know, there's a quote from Tosh where he says that, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says that both Stephen and the audience should be unaware whether there's one whether William Hartnell is playing one character or two, whereas that's never the case in Lucarotti's version. In Lucarotti's version, you always know that there are two characters and you are encouraged to enjoy the sort of the process of impersonation. You know, it's like the enemy of the world. It's it's the same conceit. It's, it's that Prince and the Pauper thing. And that seems to be what Lucarotti wrote or it, we can intuit that that's what Lucarotti wrote because then that's what he turned it back into. And Tosh, yeah, that's not what he wanted. And so he does something different. And I was, 
you know, I think I was able to find um, some records of the, you know, just the fact that they're, although it was a little bit earlier, that there genuinely was a fake abbot of Marmoutier, which is the, there's not an abbey of Amboise, but there is an abbey in Amboise, which is called Marmoutier. And that there was an incident of somebody impersonating the abbot of that monastery. Um, And so to me, that has to have been the starting point for the story. Tosh never made any mention of this, but, you know, we know that Le Carotti could speak French. We know that Le Carotti lived in France for various times and know that he read French and he read books in French. And so it seemed to me that Le Carotti must at some point have come across this obscure anecdote about the French wars of religion. And when asked to do a story about the massacre, decided to employ this within his story uh, you know that it come that it comes from Lucarotti because it seems to me to be absolutely utterly impossible that there is a genuine obscure historical anecdote about somebody impersonating the abbot of an abbey of an abbey in Amboise five or six years before the massacre was set but still within the same war and that this is not something that was in any way in the minds of the people who made the story. That That's ridiculous to me. I, I don't believe in coincidence on this. In the novelization, Lucarati references having seen a woodcut of the assassination of Admiral de Colony, which is a scene depicted in the story. And Lucarati does this as well in the Marco Polo novelization. He references having been to a museum and having seen a historical artifact that he then uses as a pivot point for his own story. But in the book, Hartnell's doctor impersonates the abbot and gives this climactic speech, which blunts the impact of the massacre and make things a little better. And he sends Anne Chaplet to safety, whereas on TV, it's the polar opposite. The doctor does nothing to blunt the impact. He sends Anne to what is likely her death, and he runs away as soon as he finds out what day it is. And that's not what we would consider now a very doctorish trait. That's the kind of story you can only tell once. And In the novelization, the Doctor knows where they are from the beginning. You know, it, 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 they're the opposite. In the novelization, he's kind of sussed it within about a chapter and a half. In fact, the whole story, he knows that they are in Paris in the days leading up to a religious genocide. Whereas in the TV story, he doesn't find out until halfway through the last episode again it's this thing of these just these two writers doing the opposite things to each other right same story idea in the same show um one of the things i think is indicative of tosh's slightly compromised rewriting um for the massacre on television is that the doctor doesn't know that they're in Paris in 1572. But he also knows that he knows where Charles Preslan lives. And he knows enough to want to get Preslan out of Paris, but not enough, doesn't know that he needs to because he doesn't know where they are. 
and that's a sort of that to me that that sort of textual drift seems indicative of something more like Le Carotti's book being underneath and Tosh having gone over it and created a logical problem. You had done a similar substack recently on Celestial Toymaker and how you can distinguish the Donald Tosh draft from the Jerry Davis rewrites. I want to talk about that at a later date because I certainly want to have you back on to do a full episode on Celestial Toymaker, but it is fascinating to watch how the scripts sort of build over themselves depending on who is commissioning or script editing or doing the rewrite. You have also done several, as we mentioned, DVD infotexts. I will say that the very first time that I was in London in 2018, I wanted to watch some Doctor Who in the hotel. So I brought a random DVD and I happened to bring Kinda. Ah. And that turns out to have been one of your infotext. So the very first thing I did when I got to London was read one of your DVD production <laughs> notes. Well, as I, as I almost as I almost never leave London, I was probably about a mile and a half away when you did that. <laughs> oh, I was I was taken with how you described the because I think Big Mead commissioned the story and his fingerprints are on the earliest episode and then it gets progressively more Saywardian for want of a better word. But I think the earliest version of the story was a little more Buddhist and then once Sayward got finished, it becomes a lot more overtly Christian with the the snake and the apple and and yeah, and I think that I think I think that both Sayward and Grimwade, they sort of they demystify it slightly. They sort of put a they literalize it slightly. Um, you know, I think that like Chris Bailey didn't like the pith helmets and that sort of thing, which is a very going to say a very literal symbol that's paradoxical but but it, it's a very obvious sort of literally minded symbol for colonialism um and i think that though i think grimway does a great job i think in both he and say would kind of pull the story in a in a in a different way in a, in a slightly different direction and that that kinder is sort of naturally a bit it's naturally a bit odder even than it is on screen. I mean, I also know that Bailey, you know the bit where the doctor, when the Doctor's vision is literally of Panna and Karuna beckoning him? Yes. Like, but know that that's, Bailey didn't like that, felt that that was uh, summon, you know, the kind of the summoning aspect of it was very, again, it was just a bit too literal, a bit too on the nose. Um, and that it, that sort of didn't, work for him him at all i mean i don't mind i love everything about kinder really. <laughs> uh, i was going to ask you i asked a similar question to paul schoons when he was on recently when i read the info texts i sort of get palpitations because a lot of the info text writers will key a specific caption to a specific moment of dialogue and it forms a visual pun and just the amount of information that you have to process about the genesis of a story and turn it into a running 90-minute script, I would not even know where to begin on day one. And you had done paired stories because you did both Kinda and Snake Dance. Because I did them for the DVD set. I did them back-to-back as well. Right, because they, they came out on the same box set of memories. Yeah, they came out on the same box set. Yes, I did them back-to-back. So th- those two complement each other, but... Otherwise, you have a very wide range of stories that you've done across the entire classic series. 
What is your process for putting together the info texts and making sure the captions uh, line up at the appropriate time? Well, I mean, I you know, I, I think everybody does it very much the same. You know, um, Martin Wiggins, who's the editor, sort of has a a way that he wants us to approach it, and you know, ultimately he's he's in charge, and you know, we sort of follow his his format, which is also a very good way of doing it. So we'd be kind of fools not to. He's very distinguished. It's Martin, but um, we, uh, I mean, what I do is. The first thing I'll do is I'll watch the story and take very basic notes about timings and where things are. So I'd be with Kindy. You'd be saying that you know, Richard Todd first appears here with you know with a minute and second time, and this character first appears here, and very very basic notes and sort of things that occur to you that you have to do in the thing it will be a very very not even a draft just just literally very rough notes then i would get the production folder for the story from the bbc written archive or more usually these days a scan of it sent to you um by um you know by the blu-ray people and then you would go through that and find out interesting things that are in the production folder, um, dates, names, costs, um, correspondence, uh, earlier drafts, whatever, um, and kind of build up lists of things that you need to include in the story because that's how you tell the story of the story. Then I would go through and do a timing of the story where you literally break down not quite every shot, but every episode, every scene, most shots into subtitle lengths using a minute, second and frame number format. And then that gives you a sort of skeleton and then you write the subtitles to go into that format so that they synchronize with what it is that's on screen. And you find the first, then at this point, you're looking at doing a proper first draft. And what you do then is there are certain things that can only go in certain places. Like there's only one place in the story where you can put that piece of information. So, for example, in Kinder, when the Doctor pings the wind chimes and plays Three Blind Mice, if you're going to explain the the song Three Blind Mice, that's the only point in the story that you can do it. So if you can't do it then, you're not going to be able to include that information. So you build the structure of each episode around the information that has to be in a certain place and then you go through again and put in slightly more generic things that are relevant to the story but that can only go in certain places so staying with kinder really you want to talk about richard todd's career when richard todd is on screen not when 
Peter Davison is on screen. Right. And so you're, because it needs to be relevant to what, to the images. And so that kind of second tier, not in terms of, in terms of how important it is, but second tier in terms of the specificity of it, that has to go in then. And then probably you'll go through it a third time and put in the much more generic things. And then probably you need to do another, another go through and tidy it all up and, um, and thing, and then send it off and have notes and then probably go do another go through then after that. And then hopefully it's in a position where it sort of works. One of the things I learned about Kinda last time I watched the story, because when I did my Doctor Who classic series pilgrimage during the pandemic, October 2020 through November 2021, watching two episodes a night, I watched Kinda over two nights, and I forgot, but you do mention this in the caption, that Richard Todd has an Oscar nomination for his role in The Hasty Heart. His co-star, Ronald Reagan, happens to be happens to be sitting president of the United States at the same time the story is being made. That's a fascinating yes. historical rhyme. Maybe uh, Ronald Reagan should have stuck to acting. <laughs> I don't think he ever did much acting, did he, Ronald Reagan? Uh, not after the 1950s, but... No, no, I, I was I was criticizing his acting ability rather than uh... yes, he was he was also playing himself at, at all times. Um, mm. Yeah, watching his character in the Hasty Heart is not too dissimilar to Reagan the Man. Um, but yeah, yeah if, if he had stuck to acting, <laughs> maybe uh, the U.S. could have been spared some things in the 1980s. <laughs> but I, I digress. So I think you've also done. You've contributed to the Black Archives recently on the Flux season as well. Yes. And which of the six episodes did you cover? That's not one of the Black Archives that I had yet. I did the Halloween Apocalypse. Oh, yes. And that's also got to be interesting because that's a story that has to set up an awful lot of dominoes. And I think it has 25 speaking parts for a 50-minute episode. So there's certainly a lot going on in there. I mean, with the Halloween Apocalypse, what I sort of wanted to talk about, because with the Black Archives, basically, I want to write, I want to write one for each Doctor. That's my, my thing. Um, I, you know, I just want to do one for each incarnation. And I didn't know necessarily which Whitaker one I wanted to do. And also, because of the kind of book I write, the more recent a story is, the more difficult it is to write about because I kind of write historical contextual pieces. I don't write kind of radical interpretive things. And that's why I was really delighted to do the night of the doctor because it's very short. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, but I could, you know, you know, I could sustain 20,000 words of more or less pure interpretation with the night of the doctor, because I'm not going to be able to write a, complicated production history because it doesn't have a complicated production history and it's very recent and was even more recent when I wrote the book. Um, but So I didn't know what I wanted to write for a Whitaker story and Phil emailed me and said, are we doing this thing with Flux and are you interested in doing an episode? And I sort of undenied and then I thought, oh, I'll do the Halloween Apocalypse because I can talk about things like it it being part of the, that small tradition of Doctor episodes that are set on the day that 
they were going to be shown. And I could talk about a little bit about the way that the first two episodes of Flux are like a, a Russell T. Davis-style opening trilogy, which is a kind of form that the series, that the, the modern Doctor Who keeps snapping back to. And also the ways, talk about the ways in which they're not. I've got to talk about a sense of place um, with it. I've got to talk about Liverpool and Chris Chibnall as a as a Liverpudlian writer and the the sense of place that kind of comes from that. And it just gave me and again, because it wasn't a whole book, it was a short book as part of six short books all put together as one book, I, I could do the kind of interpretive stuff without, you know, doing the kind of historical inquiry side of what I do because you know, you can't write a historical inquiry for something that came out a year ago. Although having said that, you know, in the UK we have today just had a um, a report written on the kind of historical crimes committed by a prime minister literally a year ago. So, <laughs> in fact, maybe you can. Well, speaking of US presidents, our former president <laughs> earlier this week was indicted on 37 counts, including under the Espionage Act. So there's a lot of uh, one-upmanship between uh, UK and US heads of state right now. They are the same. No, the king is the head of state. The, uh, the prime minister is simply the head of government. Uh, but Trump and Johnson are basically the same guy. I mean, they're just, they're just the same guy in different contexts. Similar hairstyles, both born in New York City. Yeah, both massive sex pests, both plutocrats, both um, both do that kind of attack and divert thing where, you know, anybody who criticises them is, they sort of impugn their motivations and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're basically the same guy. I mean, they're sort of, one of them is very, despite being born in America, one of them, you know, Johnson is very British and Trump is very, very American. You know, you, you Trump is not a personality that could exist outside of the United States of America. And, and Johnson is a personality that couldn't really exist outside of the UK. Um, but despite their kind of country specific contextual things, they are kind of really the same guy, which is sort of really alarming. So just, they're, like, they're like each other's evil twin. Growing up, as I did a few miles away from where Trump grew up. And then later on, when I was in my late 20s, early 30s, living in a Donald Trump-owned building in the outer boroughs, I have had to change my accent because there are some words where my natural inclination is to pronounce the word the exact same way that Donald Trump does. So I have made the conscious decision that I am not going to talk like that anymore. As soon as he became president, I purged all of my bright red ties <laughs> from my collection because they resembled his. He's definitely a cautionary tale. <laughs> also, he kind of like sounds like an evil raccoon in a 1980s cartoon series. So <laughs> He would not be a member of the Get Along Gang, to reference uh, <laughs> one of the last 1980s cartoons that I watched before, before I aged out. <laughs> So, um, I do want to talk to you about the novelizations as well. You have done yeah. substacks recently on both Earthshock 
and the Five Doctors. And we were comparing, I think we have the exact same edition of the Five Doctors novelization we were showing each other earlier. Yeah, I think so. With the monochrome post-October 1984 Target logo on the front cover. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think mine, this one is a slightly later printing. Mine is a 1986 printing. Oh, I have the fourth impression, 1984. That's four impressions in 12 months. That'll do well for you as a publisher. I have a, I have a first edition as well, but this is the um, this is the one that I in the Substack I wrote about the visitation novelization and buying it, and I say that I also bought the Five Doctors novelization on the same day. This is that copy. The, the later printing I have is the what is the one I have from childhood. So you were referring to that self same copy of the Five Doctors in your visitation Substack. Yep. Actual, literal, same physical object. And in your substack, you were talking about the production history of the story, that it began life as a Robert Holmes script called The Six Doctors. And as it turns out, elements of the Robert Holmes pitch wound up being incorporated into The Timeless Children, speaking of the Chris Chimble era. So that is a draft that has a very long cultural footprint. And also dimensions in time. You know, I think that, you know, it's an, it's an observable influence on dimensions in time as well. <laughs> it's quite funny. When would you have first seen and then read Five Doctors? Well, well, I mean, I can't tell you the exact date, but I can tell you that in it was in late 1989. I was seeing the Five Doctors. I saw the Five Doctors on transmission. Um, and then again on when it was repeated in 1984. So do you have any distinct memories of watching it on original transmission, which is the day after the novelization came out in the stores? <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I, I remember watching the five dots on transmission. Um, a few sort of scattered specific memories of, of it. Um, though I was only five, I would only have been five at the time. But I, I do do definitely remember it being on, and then I remember seeing it again when it was repeated in 1984. And then it just became this kind of distant memory thing of legend to me until I got the novelization, which would have been towards the end of 1989. And then not long after that, I would have found the rental VHS in a rental shop and was able to rent it and see it again for the first time in five years and then not long after that it came out on video again unedited and i got it for christmas and subsequent to that i have seen the five doctors an astonishing number of times <laughs> i do repeat of low low triple figures i would say uh over the last 30 years or so. It came on my local PBS station very early on in my fandom, and it was the four-part edit, so I watched most of it over four nights. And then I, I told this story earlier in this episode. I'll just do it very briefly again here. It was a very long time before I saw the last five minutes of the story again. So that's, <laughs> of all the VCR malfunctions, that is one of the ones that is the most tragic, but I watched the first 85 minutes of the story 
endlessly <laughs> on that videotape, even knowing that it was going to cut out at a climactic moment. <laughs> One of the topics I'm going to explore in next week's episode of Five Doctors Part 2, I've already recorded with an all-star panel. I'm trying to explore the theme, is Five Doctors as televised the greatest classic series story of them all? Because we've all seen it, as you say, the low triple digits. We can all quote almost every line of dialogue with the slightest of prompts. I'm wondering if that is enough to make it the greatest classic series story. I'm not sure that if you asked me what is the greatest story, and that I would automatically say The Five Doctors. But if anybody told me they thought it was the greatest Doctor Who television story, I wouldn't think that it was a ridiculous choice if that makes sense. Like if, if somebody said to me, I think the two doctors is the greatest Doctor Who television story, I would suggest that, you know, an intervention, um, <laughs> you know, counseling, but you know, the five doctors, if somebody said, no, I think that is the best one. I would say, yeah, okay. No, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a very good shout. I mean, you know, it is brilliant. Um, the, you know, the flaws that it has are, I think, sort of in terms of sloppy direction and editing and a remove of now nearly 40 years. There's very little difference between very good VT studio drama with film inserts of the early 1980s and slightly shoddy vt studio drama of the early 1980s with film inserts you know the the gap between them has shrunk and that diminishes the the practical physical flaws that the five doctors might have as television you know um and it's a brilliant script and it is it is a brilliant brilliant script um about which i could go on for ever um and it does have, you know, it does have Pertwee, Troughton and Davison absolutely firing on all cylinders. It's got sort of all these lovely cameos and all these sort of wonderful key characters in supporting roles. It's got all that film on location. It's got sort of Richard Herndl, the original Mayfly Doctor. Yes. It's absolutely lovely. Um, it's even got, you know, even the, even the, the, the bit of Tom is kind of perfect. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anything to complain about in the fight doctors. I, I, I think it is. I think it is an extraordinary achievement. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I think I think there's an argument for it. Certainly, I mean, do you know the Metabolist Two podcast? They have like a preference revealer. I do not. There are so many Doctor Who podcasts that at the moment I can only focus on the ones that I guest <laughs> on or co-host, which is probably about a range of six or seven. So that one has not managed to fall on my radar. Let me look that up. On their website, they have a, a pre, you know a preference revealer where you put things head to head. Yes. Um, they have a Doctor Who specific preference revealer, which um, was a thing I we used to do a lot in the middle of the night when feeding my son when he was a tiny baby because he was just like you can do on a smartphone once you've got a bottle in one hand and um i i found that sort of if i did that if i did that honestly 
without any sort of recourse to either going along with fan wisdom or deliberately trying to subvert fan wisdom. I found the Five Doctors kind of always came out top of the Davison era for me, sort of above Androzani, which is the sort of traditional um, best Davison story choice, isn't it? Um, but it, yeah, it is. there's so much to love in it, isn't there? So I found Metabilis 2 on my Google Podcast app. Turns out the hosts were actually at Gallifrey 1 in February at the same time that I was, so I might well have run into them. There was a podcast meetup room, and I don't recall meeting them there, but I'm sure we crossed paths. I mean, again, you know, as I said to you earlier, you know, I listened, I, there are almost no podcasts that I can listen to all of, but I listen to bits of lots of them. No, not bits of, I listen to episodes of lots of them, but it's sort of like, but I really, I love their preference revealer. And I did tell them that on Twitter and Mastodon and various other social medias, social media. Um, but yeah, this, the, the five doctors is so, so lovely, isn't it? The music's brilliant. Um, the scene with Jamie and Zoe is like one of my favourite scenes in all of Doctor Who. Um, the last line is amazing. I love that Terence just writes the Master as Delgado. You know, he knows it's not going to be Delgado, but he just writes Delgado. And that gives Ainley the opportunity to give his most Delgado-like performance because he's just playing lines written for Delgado. I mean, see, there's always there's always a point when I'm reading your substacks. It's a it's a, it's a three part reaction. Number one, <laughs> I have never thought of that before. <laughs> Number two, OMG, how have I never thought of that before? <laughs> Number three, I am an idiot for not thinking of that. I am inferior. I'm quitting. So I, I, I just had an hour-long conversation with three guests, and that'll be in next week's episode about The Five Doctors. We talked at length about Anthony Ainley's performance as the best performance that he gave. Spoiler alert for next week. I have never before noticed that, yes, Terence Dix is writing for the master that he created, the Roger Delgado master. And that explains the scene in the inner council room on Gallifrey at the beginning. You're right. That is 100% Delgado. Oh, oh, I quit. I'm stupid. It's your show. Take it over. <laughs> I can't do the technical stuff. But, um, you know, the master of the five doctors is not insane. After the deadly assassin, the master is insane. But he's not insane in the five doctors because Terence is writing Delgado. I'll tell you my very first memory of five doctors I had just, the show was being aired on my local PBS station, 25 minutes a night, starting at 7 p.m., immediately after the long-running PBS home repair series, This Old House, hosted by Bob Vila, which was the inspiration for the later Tim Allen sitcom Home Improvement, on which Bob Vila had some cameos. I would always turn on the TV a couple of minutes early, and I would always hear the closing theme to This Old House, which is burned into my brain to this day. <laughs>
<laughs> in the same way, um, a lot of British fans of a certain age will associate the beginning of Doctor Who with um, the noise of the football results on a Saturday night, which is very often um, the the BBC reading out the results of all the football matches in the UK would be the last thing that was on before Doctor Who, or when it was on a Saturday. And and I associate I associate um, the beginning of Doctor Who particularly with um, the end of the, there was a Terry Wogan who was a, a Irish um, British based broadcaster who was a sort of legend of um, legend of radio and, and television in this country, a sort of, I don't know, like Jackie Coogan sort of level, sort of um, legend of chat shows and things. And his chat show was on immediately before Doctor Who for the whole of the McCoy era. So I kind of associate Waiting for Doctor Who with the end credits of his chat show um, and his sort of coming up next week stuff. Um, but yeah, it's funny, those kind of Proustian things. It's fascinating because watching my daughter, who's a teenager, she experiences media so differently because she's from the age of on-demand and the age of streaming and the age of TikTok. She doesn't have this notion of watching one show bleed into another show that is completely tonally opposite and different. Only on PBS would you get a home improvement show immediately followed by British sci-fi, immediately followed by a local origin news program. So the very first second of five doctors that I would have seen is the William Hartnell clip from Dalek Invasion of Earth. Although at that point, I didn't know nothing about the Hartnell era. I'd only been a fan for about a month. I didn't have the program guide yet. And due to some glitch at the local station, the first 15 seconds of the Hartnell clip was audio only, no video, which I thought was a deliberate stylistic choice. But no, it turns out the entire video was there. My station just botched it. Would be quite a nice stylistic choice if it was. Yeah, so that's that, I, I discovered the found poetry that way. And I didn't realize I was looking at William Hartnell and that he was a different person from Richard Herndall. What's funny is about nine months later, the Hartnell package finally is sold to the States. And when I went to my first Doctor Who convention in July 1985 at the now defunct Roosevelt Hotel in Manhattan, they showed one Hartnell and one Trout and Story that day. Ooh, which one? They showed the sixth episode, well, they showed the movie format version of Dalek Invasion of Earth with the bespoke 1985 video credits. And then my father immediately took me out and took me home because he just couldn't, he, he, he'd had enough. So I missed, <laughs> I missed the seeds of death. And the whole ride home on the Long Island Railroad, he was complaining about the poor video quality. He said, that's kinescope. It's where you take a film camera and video to the t- videotape the TV. It looks terrible. How do you stand for that? I'm like, what are you watching? It's incredible. Of course, he had left me alone for large portions of the recording to run to chock full of nuts across the street and get copious amounts of coffee. But he did watch the last half hour, didn't understand where there was a long scene writing Susan out. It's total mismatch. So I, I managed to miss the, the seeds of death, and I didn't see that on PBS for a long time. But I was sitting there in awe, and I recognized that scene at the end as being the, the farewell of Susan because I'd already heard it and seen it yeah. five doctors earlier. So it, it was just wonderful thing to show perhaps they screened it because of the five doctors connection for all i know i would say the interesting thing about the seeds of death for the purposes of this podcast is that the seeds of death is the first story to be released on vhs before it's novelized 
Oh, wow. Whereas Five Doctors, of course, is the first story to be novelized <laughs> before it was broadcast. So in terms of the Five Doctors novelization, um, I've been reading it back and I've written my script for the audio essay, which is going to follow the interview segment with you. So just in a few minutes time, as far as the audience is concerned, um, having read this so soon after the Terminus novelization, which is the longest book in eight years and is so lush and dense, there were moments that I wished Terrence would give us more than he did because it's, you know, it's 124 pages. It's not, it's not his longest book and it's certainly not his most detailed because he's writing to a very specific deadline, but, how does the novelization land for you as a companion piece to the TV serial, which you've seen, as you say, at least a hundred times? I mean, I'm, I, 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 I love Terence Dicks, um, both as a, a, a screenwriter and as a, as a, as a novelizer. I think he's incredibly, even now, I think he's incredibly underappreciated. I think that there is a, a simplicity to his prose which is incredibly deliberate and incredibly precise. You know, it's, you know, I think George Orwell would have approved of Terence Dix's writing and the, sort oh, of wow. the economy and precision, uh, the deafness of his sort of deploying of, of what he can do. And the five doctors is not one of his best ones, but it, 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 his skills are such that it's still wonderful. And I always think as well, I do like Terence novelizing himself. That That's a kind of special pleasure. You know, I, I know that the essential Terence Dix was sort of like democratically elected. But, you know, if I'd have been in charge of that book, one of those volumes would have just been all of his novelizations of his own stories. Mm. Um, because that's very pure, you know. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think, it, you know, you know, people talk about the brilliant opening lines of Terence Dix's books and, you know, The Five Doctors has got fantastic one. You know, I, just, I can do it for instance. It was a place of ancient evil. Somehow the evil seemed to hang in the air like smoke or fog that the long centuries have been, been unable to disperse. And that's great. Um, there are very few... And again, this is at the end of the first page when the player of the game is still messing about with the controls. It's like the player leaned forward, forward eagerly, turning the controls, bringing the picture into clear focus. It was time for the games to begin. Again, it's just the the, the sort of the precision, and it's so evocative. Um, I mean, you know, we get we get all five of Terence's pen sketches of the doctor. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. In the same book. Um, no, I, I mean, I think it's it's a very quick read, but it's, again, it, it's, this is another bit so I've made sort of, um, when the, again, sort of the way of sort of transferring to, um, from television to to the page, another really nice economical bit of writing just after the Doctor and the Master have been attacked by the Cybermen. It's, um, Although she knew it was almost suicidally dangerous, Susan still couldn't resist hanging back. She saw the Master fall. She saw the Doctor kneeling by his body. 
she saw the Cybermen closing in. Again, it's incredibly simple, but it's it, it's it's not facile. You know, it, it, it's it's evocative and incredibly precise, and and I, I really admire that, particularly because I am, you know, myself unnecessarily verbose and just kind of keep going all <laughs> over. And that level of discipline that he has is certainly beyond me. <laughs> I'm, I'm really glad to hear you say that, number one, because my scripts, too, have been accused of being uh, self-indulgently long. But when Notre Dame caught fire in April 2019, I had just been there the previous summer. And I'd been inside and I'd taken video during a Sunday night service eight months earlier. So the first thing I did when I heard that Notre Dame had caught fire was I pulled the novelization out of my target bin and I started reading it because I had fond memories of the massacre novelization and I hadn't read it in about a decade. And I realized that John Lucarotti was drowning his book in paragraph long run on sentences. And it's impossible to read out loud because these are not sentences that were ever read out loud by anybody. Whereas Terrence is almost writing for the audiobook. Although Peter Purvis does a fantastic job of the audio. Yeah, he, he is able he is able to do that, but I do not have his skills. And when I try to read a passage out loud, I'm gasping for breath halfway through the middle. <laughs> but that's one of the things that I appreciate about Terrence. And I'm glad you mentioned that about George Orwell as well, because earlier during the pandemic, when I was reading to my daughter a lot, I read her Animal Farm. This is about two years ago now. And that's another book that's great to read out loud because Orwell's not exactly writing for kids, but he is writing in a more juvenile sentence structure on purpose. Well, he's, he's, telling, you know, he's telling a fable. And so you were going to say, I was just saying that, you know, he talks about in his, in his, in his writing about writing, he talks about economy and clarity and, you know, never use two words where one will do. And that sort of thing is, is a very important piece of advice for Orwell in terms of writing. And, and I think Terence is, um, you know, he's in that sort of tradition, you know, I mean, that's what made him so great for the, you know, the quick reads program that he wrote for in the yes. first RTD era, the idea that these books are not, they're not children's books, but they are easily read books for adults, I think is a sort of, is a sort of perfect positioning for him. Um, you know, and I think that's sort of where he, where he belongs. When I read animal farm to my daughter, Orwell pulls no punches and you always know what's going on at any given time. And you're always a few steps ahead of the characters, which is a good place for the reader to be in. At the end of chapter two, my daughter figured out that Napoleon was going to be the villain of the piece. And that's it. That's the entire book spoiled, right? If she's guessed it at the end of chapter two, where's the surprise? So I spent most of the rest of the book desperately trying to pretend that she was wrong. <laughs> so I started reading Napoleon as if he were voiced by American musical comedy actor Charles Nelson Riley. And I started reading Snowball as if he were Chancellor Palpatine from Star Wars, which is a terrifying <laughs> voice. Didn't didn't work, didn't work, but that's that's the tribute to Orwell's writing. He and uh, I think I, th I like that comparison between him and Terence. It's a really apt comparison. Well, are, you, are you saying that the relevance of this is that um, is that Bruce is obviously the player of the game? 
he almost he almost gives it away in Barusa's first appearance. I suppose Snowball gets to be the master. <laughs> is that how that works? <laughs> oh yeah, my my Roger Delgado voice is about as good as my Charles Nelson Riley impression. But I'll, I'll workshop that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, 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 again, I, you know, I think that I think that Barusa turning out to be the villain is sort of, and Terence has been, you know, very upfront that his assumption was that the master would be the player of the game and say would said, no, you just can't do that because everybody will expect it. And Terence went, yeah, you're right. So we'll have a sort of whodunity aspect. Um, though there aren't really many suspects. Um, but I do think it sort of, I think it, I think it, particularly as it being like 20th anniversary stories, you know, whatever version of why did the Doctor run away from Gallifrey that, you know, we're working on this week, it's always about really sort of Gallifrey being kind of indolent and corrupt. So for the sort of the villain of the, the villain of the 20th anniversary story to be the president is sort of very fitting and also kind of fits in with, uh, you know, Terence Dix was an enormously modest, self-effacing man. And, you know, he always gave Robert Holmes the credit for sort of making the Time Lords petty and venal after him and Malcolm Hulk had made them gods. But, you know, the brain of Morbius is still, after Holmes, is rewrite mostly by Terence Dix. And the um, the whole thing of there having been a previous Time Lord president who was a deranged dictator is sort of completely his. So, you know, he has a, he very much has his own, you know, he he's as much responsible for the demystifying of the Time Lords as Holmes is, you know. I mean, I don't think Holmes would have got the Deadly Assassin without what Terence does in the Brain of Morbius. And I think that, um, the Five Doctors, you know, builds on that by making, you know, the, again, the sort of the, it's, it's what you're saying earlier about Trump or whatever. You know, the highest in the land is the is the villain of the piece, and that's a very Doctor Who thing. Doctor Who is a ultimately is an anti-authority, anti-authoritarian sort of thing. You know, even if sometimes that private school awkward squad, squad kind of anti-authoritarianism, but it's still it's still there. So I think it's really good and appropriate that the the villain is the boss, you know. <laughs> I think that's sort of that's a that's a good thing to do in the in that story. The novelizations that Terence seems to get the most out of are the ones that have these overtly political fencing elements. So Claws of Axos, where you have the man from the ministry who's corrupt Terence relishes those scenes. The bits in Unearthly Child talking about the leadership battle between Za and Cal in ancient in um, prehistoric times. Terence really gets an extra charge out of writing those scenes. And it's neat because when you look at the Blu-rays, on the audio commentary, Terence is always disclaiming any responsibility for a story. If you want to send a message, use Western Union. Yeah, But then you read the production notes. This scene was added by Terence Dick for thematic importance. Terence wrote this scene. So he's always disclaiming the stories that he literally saved and he won't take any credit for it. I mean, you know, he, you know, he didn't write it, but you know, it is a matter of record that the reason the Green Death exists is because 
Barry Letts came in furious about three different things and Terence was like, well, you've got a television programme, why don't you just put in? <laughs> you know, well, if you, you know, if you, if you really believe it's time the world had, uh, you know, was sounded the alarm bell about pollution. It's like well, you've, you, you are the producer of a television program. They should watch by eleven million people a week. <laughs> you, know, you, just, you could just do it in that, couldn't you? You know, and so he did. But also, I mean, I you know, I think you talking about the like you see, like Horror Fang Rock, you know, which is very, very much about class in a in a British sense, where you you not only have. Um, you know, you not only do you have representatives of the sort of the the three classes as you would as as a Marxist would define them, um, but you know, in in terms of you know, you have a you have people who you have people who make money from land, you have people who make money from capital, and you have people who make money from selling their labour. You know, those three class elements are represented in that lighthouse but that lighthouse is also on three levels it's physically on three levels and then you have people moving up and down people in the 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 people moving up and down the class structure within the class structure as the doctor as a disruptive element goes in and then there becomes it it slowly develops with this thing where the the um but the, the the peer is ultimately more interested in capital and the 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 middle ranking class guy is ultimately more interested in honor and you know there's there's all this money features so much in that story in terms of bribery and you know the guy's called skin sale for god's sake i mean it, it's it's not exactly <laughs> um but it's brilliant you know it's it's a brilliant um it's a brilliant piece but it's sort of um it's sort of so Horror Frank is so much about about class and money in a, in a profoundly British way, um, and that's you know, it's sort of part of the the, the, the brilliance of it. So you, you've done you've done it again. You've you've done this point where I have the three stage reaction. <laughs> so thinking about this, you're right because Palmerdale, the millionaire, dies by falling from the top of the tower. He falls from grace. And Skinsale is killed climbing the stairs to the upper level. It's kind of like J.G. Ballard's High Rise, only with a happier ending. Yeah. <laughs> well, it might be a happier ending. Although everyone is dead. Yes. And, and, you, and you, know, you have the same thing where the, um, you know, in the uh, state of decay, the aristocracy are literally vampiric. You know, the doctor sort of comes in and talks about a uh, bucolic town, tower, puddled around with like, ducklings around the mother. Ducklings around the mother, yes. Yeah, and then it could have it's and it, it's all kind of monstrous. Um, my my wife always says that in um, that the, the peasants in state of decay are so badly treated that they don't know what cheese is. <laughs> and um, she my wife she said that she said to be honest, a society without cheese is the most dystopian thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> my GP would disagree with you. Uh, she's telling me to quit the stuff, but yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly what you mean. Ah. And it, again, it's that thing, but, but, uh, but um, State of Decay, Fang Rock, and the Five Doctors all have these towers in them as well. You know, they're, they're, they're all tower stories. And Brain of Morbius is in a castle rather than a tower. Yeah. But those three particularly, it is like a tower trilogy. It's like it's like phallic symbolism trilogy. 
One thing I love about Terrence is in the very last thing Terrence wrote before he passed away was the short story for the Target storybook. Yeah, it's great. And it takes place in Solon's castle, but it's before Morbius. It's being used as a staging point by the war chief, but the war chief is played by the same actor who played Solon, and I am sure Terrence did that on purpose. Of course he did. Of course he did. I, I was, was going to say about um, Terrence and the fighters. So on your on your other Fight Doctors episode, have you done the Charles Rowland to the Dark Tower came thing? No, I have not. Although there's still time for me to add that in. <laughs> did you know the you know the poem? Yes, I think it was uh, was a Browning. Yeah, um, but you know it's very. You know the the five doctors is very much draws on the imagery of of the poem with the the um the the doctors are obviously the knights from the poem that are making their way through the through the grounds to the tower and there's the thing with the blowing of the horn yes. and there's the thing of the white faces which is also kind of mentioned so he's obviously kind of pulling pulling on that and Terence was a um down in college, Cambridge in the fifties. Um, and, you know, Browning, you know, was on the syllabus. <laughs> so there's no way that there's no way that he hadn't read it. You know, and it, it and equally, um, you know, uh, Flan and I, Ballad of Flan and Isle is, um, is, um, fine rock, isn't it? You know, again, it's this thing that we think about Terence kind of denies, Denies that he's interested in themes, denies that he's interested in politics, denies any kind of pretensions, denies that he has any kind of literary pretensions. And then he's like the only person to write not one but two Doctor Who stories <laughs> based around poems. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's just sort of, it's just, it's just brilliant. I did this sort of, he said this was the self-effacingness of it. It's just kind of extraordinary. Wilfred Gibson is not necessarily taught in the States as a significant figure, but I was an English lit major my first semester and a half as an undergrad. One of the first things I did in the on-campus library was I went down to the lowest levels and I found the bound book of Wilfred Gibson poetry from the early 20th century, and I photocopied out the entire Ballad of Flannan Isle. And our survey instructor was making us keep creative writing journals for the entire semester. So I just put a large port of that, a large portion of that in my journal as a uh, influence. And she gave it a nice big check. It was the only part of the journal she liked, a big check mark for my Wilfred Gibson quote. And the best part of the poem is not even quoted in, in the episode, but you're right. And then I'm looking at the text of, Ch of Child Roll into the Dark Tower came on my screen right now, which also was an influence on Stephen King, although he got eight thousand page novels out of it with the dark tower <laughs> sequence rather than one perfect 90 minute script it's the economy of Terrence sticks again is the great economy of his writing ah. so before we wrap up i want to give you a chance as well since i was supposed to have you on the Earthshock episode your <laughs> your piece on Earthshock came out after i pitched you on the Earthshock episode but i love the point you make about beryl reed's performance because it, it has been trendy in fandom circles to say that she was a miscast and didn't belong on the show and didn't know what she was doing and you point out in your sub stack the exact opposite as opposed to <laughs> as it comes to Beryl Reed's performance well, I mean she's just I mean she was just a phenomenal actor she she really was I mean and uh, again I think I say in the in the sub stack is the thing that 
in the 1980s particularly, Doctor Who fans had a tendency to think that what they knew someone for was what they were known for. So, for example, when George Sewell was announced as being in Mamps the Daleks, people, not negatively, but people were like, well, he was in UFO, because that's what Doctor Who fans known for. And it's like, yeah, but also he was in Joan Littlewood's pioneering Stratford East Theatre Company of the early 1960s. And that's <laughs> of much greater significance in the history of British culture than UFO. And I say that as somebody who really likes UFO and has it on Blu-ray, so don't write it. Ah. <laughs> but, um, and it's the same thing as if people are knowing Beryl Reed because she used to be on Celebrity Squares, you know, which is the UK version of Hollywood Squares. Yes. And they were like, that was the, the, the idea was that was all she could do. And it's like, but she'd won or been nominated for every major acting award that there was, you know, and was was in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is one of the best things, if not the best thing ever made for British television. Um, and, you know, Peter Grimway worked on that, so he really should have known <laughs> how good she was um, because, you know, he'd been working on the programme in which she gave a, this extraordinary BAFTA-nominated performance. You know. I mean, Alec Guinness, for God's sake. Alec Guinness was slightly intimidated by the the sort of the sheer wattage of what Reed could do when she sort of turned it up to eleven, and he was Alec Guinness, for yeah. God's sake. And um, you know, but I, I think she's great in her shock, and, and I think there's something, you know, very, very Doctor Who about middle-aged woman with a russet bob being a kind of space trucker i think that's brilliant and that you know the 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 core of doctor who to me is in juxtapositions you know um i don't mean that it's inherently surrealist but what doctor who does is it it juxtaposes two things and if you can do that then that's when the show works i mean you know from like the literally from the police box in the junkyard onwards is that it's all about juxtaposing two things to create an effect and that's daleks on westminster bridge and that's cybermen in front of st paul's and that's the tardis everywhere that it lands it is these these juxtapositions and you know i think that what if a space freighter captain was a sort of waspish middle-aged woman is one of those kind of core doctor who juxtapositions and it is again it's kind of reflection of its sort of of its britishness i don't think that would necessarily happen in an american show and if it would happen now it wouldn't have happened in the early 1980s i i i think you know Nancy Reagan appearing on different strokes to fight the war on drugs <laughs> in a sitcom that takes place in an Upper East Side luxury building penthouse. Uh, yes, I can see exactly what you mean. It's funny, though, that you mentioned Beryl Reed on Celebrity Squares because Hollywood Squares 
one of the best-known panelists from the early days was Charles Nelson Riley, who later, and I've already mentioned him on this show, he later did a two-episode cycle of The X-Files and Millennium, which was premier U.S. science fiction in the 90s. And there was much less of an outcry when Charles Nelson Riley did X-Files and Millennium. It's, it's Yeah. But I suppose, I mean, it's like... He's very good as well, isn't he? But I... That, I don't think that I don't think that the British public generally would have gone oh Barrel Reed can't be in Dot 2 they'd have gone oh Barrel Reed's in Dot 2 you know um, it's just the fan it's like the fan cringe thing you yes. know, the, the, the this is very serious and therefore I must take it very seriously and therefore we can't have people we associate with anything silly but you know the fact that an actor has done comedy or has been on a chat show doesn't stop them being an actor, you know. Um, it's like Nicholas Parsons is brilliant in The Curse of Enric, mm. absolutely brilliant. It's a wonderful performance. And, but he, you know, that was things where I thought two fans going, what? Because in Britain, he was principally known as the chairman of a radio, of Radio 4 comedy panel game show called just a minute which he chaired for more than 50 years and in the 1980s was known as the presenter of the uk version of sale of the century but like a lot of presenters like peter purvis he'd started out as an actor he'd done years of rep he'd done dramatic parts he'd done comic parts he'd become famous for comic parts and then slid from comic acting to comic presenting to game show presenting but he was still fundamentally an actor and you know they gave him a chance to do an acting part in the curse of Fenric and he's brilliant in it you know so one of the last things he did um other than continuing to present the radio things is that he was in an episode of the the 21st century miss markle series the very small role as a, a, a elderly priest who hears somebody's confession and he's absolutely devastated by what he hears and then we don't hear what it is and then he's murdered going home. Mm. It's a small part with not a lot of lines but we're sort of required proper acting and he was great. And it's like, yeah, you know, he could have done a lot more serious acting, straight acting in his career if he'd been allowed to because he was very very capable it's just his career took him a certain way i have mentioned this on this podcast before but as a tween and a teen in the states i often didn't know who any of the british performers were because they didn't have the same cultural footprint i thought that nicholas parsons was one of the best things about curse of fenwick playing a man of the cloth who has lost his faith because of the war and going through this story arc parts one, two, and three. I thought it was an incredible, natural, pained performance. And it was shocking to come online to Records Doctor Who in the early 90s and learning that he was being cast against type and that a lot of folks thought he was controversial. I will also say to bring this back to Stephen King in The Long Walk, which was the first novel that Stephen King ever wrote and was published under the Richard Bachman name. The chap, that, 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 is, a, that is a deadly game 
which was the inspiration for the Japanese novel Battle Royale, where the Japanese junior high school is named Castle Rock Junior High, which then was an influence on the Hunger Games, allegedly. Um, Suzanne Collins swears she's never heard of Battle Royale, even though her story is a scene-for-scene retelling of Battle Royale. (laughs) But Stephen King, who got there first, he has... In the 1990s reprints, each chapter has an epigraph of a game show host in their pattern. Nicholas Parsons is mentioned in my 1990s reprint of The Long Walk. <laughs> That's interesting. And there's a, there's a good story about Nicholas Parsons is that um, he was famously kind of very unflappable. You know, he wouldn't go, basically. You know, like <clears throat> it didn't matter what sort of contestants did or whatever. He managed to stay professional at all times. But he always said apparently the one time that he sort of completely lost it and completely went was that on sale of a century, he had to ask the question of somebody, you know, of a contestant, what, according to the proverb, should people in glass houses not do? And the woman he was talking to said, take a bath. And, um, he just completely went and he was apparently sort of crying with laughter and uncontrollably. <laughs> and um, then they had to redo it because he'd interrupted the process. Uh, they had to reshoot that bit oh. to sort of keep the program going and he just went again. <laughs> <laughs> well, James, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to talk to me today. I know I definitely want to have you back on when celestial toy maker comes around in a a few more months but uh what do you have coming up in the pipeline that you might want to share with us well uh, at the moment um i mean if anybody would like to subscribe to my Substack, which is called psychic paper and can be found on substack.com um it comes in two flavors there's a infrequent free version and a weekly paid version which is three pound fifty a month um, but you can just subscribe to the free version and you will still get quite a lot of stuff about Doctor Who on the free version. Um, but I'm, I'm, that's going quite nicely for me. Um, I'm trying to build that up. But other than that, at the moment, I'm, I'm writing, I'm writing a production subtitles for a Blu-ray set, which hasn't been announced yet. I can't really say anything about that other than the fact that, um, that I'm, writing it and that it is a Doctor Who story. <laughs> about, as far, about as far as I can go on that. That narrows it down. Since we have a good portion of the series out already, we can guess by process of elimination which season it might be from. It must be one of the ones that isn't out. I think it definitely is one of the ones that isn't out. Um, but other than that, um, those are the main things I'm doing at the moment. I've got... Um, you know, like all writers, I have spec scripts and undeveloped projects and things tootling along in the background, with none of which I can talk about because that will curse them and they won't happen. <laughs> <laughs> but the yeah, the, the psychopaper is my sort of most obvious thing at the moment. Um, I would encourage people to subscribe to that if they would like to. I will second that encouragement. It has been a big influence on my show because you tend to come to stories at the same time that I do and completely upend my <laughs> perspective. So I am very much appreciative. I mean, I, I am just with, the, with that section the long way around where I'm 
talking about Doctor Who in the order that I watched it, the order I, I can remember watching it. I, that did strike me as kind of an interesting way to approach the material because I, I basically worked out. I'm not 100%, but with access to the BBC video release schedule, the UK Gold schedule, and my own memory, I can work out pretty much the order in which I saw old Doctor Who. And I just thought that might be quite an interesting way through it. And yeah, I suppose I have just wound up intersecting with your, um, because of your target schedule. Going in publication order, I'm in the middle of a 10 book long Peter Davison cluster, which features a lot of season 20. So right now we are on sync. And as I go back to the past in the next few months, maybe you'll be doing that too. Eventually. I mean, you're about to hit the sort of, what I think of as the the late golden age of the targets where suddenly you're getting Hartnell stories and Trout stories that, you know, whether it, it's, it's not Nigel Robinson, it's whoever was the editor immediately before Nigel Robinson. There's a sudden conscious decision to sort of complete doctor, complete the target library. And they're doing this, that wonderful thing is shaved like ringing up John Lucarotti and saying, well, you're still working. Do you want to novelize these? Stories that you wrote twenty years ago. He's like, "What Doctor Who? What? Like, Did I do that?" And um, which is just, I love, I love the idea that you sort of go to William M's and say that you want a novelized Doctor Who story you wrote twenty years ago. It's just brilliant. It's sort of... Somebody texted me the other day a quote from William M's about his true thoughts about women's lib as he was writing Galaxy 4. And having read that, uh, my respect for him has gone from middle of the pack to way, way, way down at the bottom. I'll be sure to read that uh, snippet of William M's when I get to the Galaxy 4 novelization. Interesting, interesting uh, guy. And um, it's uh, interesting that it was the one story that he wrote. And it still adds pretty well today, but not necessarily because of him. Uh, Stephanie Bidmead is amazing. Yes, and Derek Martinez's direction just blew me away when I saw the recovered episode three about a decade ago. He was doing phenomenal work. Well, because I I was actually, I was at the BFI when they announced that they found that and um, The Underwater Menace. I was was in the room when they went, oh, we found too much of the episode still too. Do you want to watch them? (laughs) Uh, Oh, look, it's on. You know, and Mark Gators came up and was like, oh, yeah. And that was just that was just insane. That was genuinely just, just, just an extraordinary experience to 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 go to a British television event and have somebody go, "Oh, we found some missing Doctor Who. Do you want to watch it now?" Well, look, we're going to put it on a cinema screen. Ah, oh, my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> just bonkers. Just one of the weirdest things. I have to say, I think currently my the missing episode I would most like back right now. I think is the Hall of Dolls. Ooh. Just because I've listened to it two or three times recently for the Celestial Toymaker Substack, and I just am slightly obsessed with the performances as the King and Queen of Hearts. And they are so good. They're such wonderful performances on audio. They, just, they must be better when you can see them. Carmen Silvera later came back and she was on the show for 
Invasion of the Dinosaurs, but the actor going with the stage name Campbell Singer was never on Doctor Who again, as far as I know. No, but he's um, he's in an episode of The Avengers, which is easily... Um, and he's in a very nice episode of Dad's Army called Is There Still Honey for Tea? Which um, are very easily accessible sort of uh, examples of archive television. I will make sure to watch those before I have you back to discuss Celestial <laughs> Toymaker in a few months. James, thank you so much and uh, look forward to talking to you again real soon now. Thank you for putting up with me. It's been really lovely. Have a great night. Thank you. One day, I shall come back. Yes, I shall come back. Until then, there must be no regrets, no tears, no anxieties. Just go forward in all your beliefs and prove to me that I am not mistaken in mine. Doctor Who, The Five Doctors, by Terence Dix, televised as The Five Doctors, teleplayed by Terence Dix, televised November 23rd, 1983, globally, or November 25th, 1983, in the UK, paperback release date, November 24th, 1983, target book number 81, cover artist Andrew Skilleter, a 20th anniversary special featuring the Doctor in all five of his regenerations. Why are all five Doctors being removed from their separate time streams? Who is the enemy they will have to unite against? What will become of the Doctors when the battle is over? We have traveled a long way with Doctor Who. The five Doctors gives us the chance to turn the clock back and meet some old friends and some old enemies. Which version of the five Doctors are you? There's the original 1983 release and the 1995 special edition. The original version opens inside the TARDIS. The special edition opens with many shots of empty corridors in the death zone. Terence Dix in the audio commentary to the 1999 DVD release of the special edition, the very first Doctor Who DVD, by the way, makes the point that empty corridors are not inherently menacing. In the novelization of Five Doctors, which again, came out before the TV episode, Terence opens with neither of these intros. He doesn't open in the TARDIS. He doesn't open inside menacing corridors. He opens instead on the Time Lord's Citadel in the secret death zone control room hidden in, spoiler alert for a 40-year-old story. By the way, I'm recording this in 2023, which is the 20th anniversary of the 20th anniversary 
of the 20th anniversary episode. The Death Zone control room is hidden in an antechamber off the inner council debate room. James Couray Smith read the first two paragraphs earlier, so I will not repeat them, but they are vintage Terence. The first page has more in common with Terence's 21st century BBC books novels about a mysterious agency called the Players. This page introduces our secret bad guy as Player, capital P. The word Player in a different context would come to dominate the later 1980s, especially in hip-hop music. Also introduced on the first page is the William Hartnell Doctor. Quote, the swirling mists on the monitor screen resolve themselves into a blurred picture, the picture of a man, an old white-haired man, in an old-fashioned frock coat. First Doctor, first page. From then, the book plays out more or less in TV order, albeit with deleted scenes from Terence's submitted script that would not make it to air until the special edition. Interesting that on TV, the opening banter between the Fifth Doctor and Tegan is pleasant and open, to coin a phrase, where in the book, Tegan speaks, quote, bitterly on page 9, sounds like Terence writing to what he knew Eric Sayward's expectations were, and then in studio, the actors decided to go off script and celebrate the anniversary special by, here's a novel idea, Eric Sayward actually having fun. Finished? Yes. Looks rather splendid, doesn't it? But will the TARDIS work properly? Of course, once everything's run in. Didn't you repair anything? Well, the TARDIS is more than a machine, Tegan. It, it, it's like a person. It needs coaxing, persuading, encouraging. You mean it's just as unreliable? You have little faith, Tegan. Do you blame me? And you can't hear it on the audio, but at the end of that clip is Janet Fielding laughing warmly on TV, not something the actress or the character often had occasion to do during the filmings of most of the Peter Davison era. This is also Turlow's second book. We covered his first book, Terminus, two weeks ago in episode 79. Turlow was never really described physically in that book, so Terence gets to introduce him properly on page 9. Quote, he was a thin-faced, sandy-haired young man in the blazer and flannels of his public school, good-looking in a faintly untrustworthy way. End quote. Sandy-haired, by the way. JNT famously made the dark brown Davison dye his hair blonde to be the first post-Tom Baker doctor, and then was backed the next season into having the blonde Mark Strickson dye his hair red in order to stand out, the same way that Peter Davison had to dye his hair to stand out from Tom Baker. Terence appears to have been working from an old Strickson headshot rather than any season 20 video. On page 10, the Hartnell Doctor is seen, quote, nearing the end of his first incarnation. This is decades before The Timeless Children, which, by the way, was inspired by Robert Holmes's stab at the 20th anniversary special, a proposal called The Six Doctors, where the Cybermen tried to conquer Gallifrey and turn themselves into, quote, Cyberlords. The First Doctor is retired and caring for his bees, which to me is Terence paying tribute to the retired octogenarian version of Sherlock Holmes of Conan Doyle's later fiction. Terence giving us this right after the child Roland to the Dark Tower came reference, of course. A couple of things from TV that don't show up in Chapter 1. Ad-libs. 
the second doctor getting the unit sergeant to remove his fur coat for him, and the hop-like kangaroo's line. That's Patrick Troughton's improvisational genius for you. Now, I've seen the TV so many times that I could probably, with a couple of prompts, recite the entire story from memory. It's odd not having them in the book, too. Terence makes our long-awaited reintroduction to Sarah Jane Smith. She'd recently been in Canine and Company, a special made as part of Season 19, but not yet novelized for the target line in November 1983, with only a passing reference to her canine, Mark III, being a, quote, souvenir of Sarah's former association with, quote, that traveler in time and space known as the Doctor. Terence gives Sarah Jane hard feelings, too, left over from the Hand of Fear, which Terence novelized himself back in episode 46 of this podcast. Page 21, quote, Her parting with the Doctor had been abrupt, and as far as she was concerned, final. Down at the bottom of the same page, quote, Doctor indeed, she thought, as she walked down the quiet suburban road. After years of companionship and innumerable shared dangers, the Doctor had suddenly rushed off to Gallifrey in response to some mysterious summons, leaving Sarah behind. She had been insisting for some time that all she wanted was to return to Earth and lead a quiet life, but the abruptness of the parting had left Sarah feeling abandoned and more than a little resentful. Terence gives us a deleted scene that was never filmed, pages 2 and 23, and that is the return of Susan Foreman for the first time since Terence's novelization of the Dalek invasion of Earth. The woman called Susan Campbell, who had once been known as Susan Foreman, walked through the streets of New London on the way to market. Looking about her, she marveled at how swiftly the city had recovered from the devastation of the Dalek attack. Gleaming new buildings were everywhere. The old bombed sites had all been cleared. Those which hadn't been used as sites for new buildings had been turned into parks and gardens. It was a smaller London. It would be many years before population rose anywhere near its old levels, but it was a greener, far more attractive one. Life had been hard at first, For many years, she had seen very little of her husband David, who was a prominent figure in the Reconstruction government, but gradually life had returned to normal. Now Susan and David and their three children could look forward to a more peaceful life. These days, it seldom occurred to Susan that this wasn't really her world at all, that she had originally come here almost by chance, in the company of the old man she sometimes called Grandfather, and everyone else called the Doctor. While it seems churlish to criticize the novelization of an anniversary special, one which had to be written in a hurry, specifically to meet the deadline of being on the shelves before the episode aired, I do sometimes wish this book had been 30 pages longer, as was Terminus. Sometimes, Terence's prose stumbles over itself, which happens, but rarely. Page 30. The news gave Barusa no pleasure. Involving this person does not please me can't have please and pleasure in the same paragraph to convey the same meaning, Terence, my dude. Nor can you use the word insolently twice in the same paragraph as he does bottom of the same page, referring to the Anthony Ainley master. Also missing from chapter 3 is the Castellan's line, probably devised in rehearsal to explain why this is not the same Barusa actor seen just a few months before in Ark of Infinity. With all due respect, Lord President, your regeneration has not helped your stubbornness. Chapter 4 contains some extra Fifth Doctor material inside the TARDIS, which was not part of the original broadcast, but which later made it into the special edition. 
specifically the end of chapter cliffhanger where the doctor faints for like the fifth time in four chapters, trying to launch a recall signal from the TARDIS console. In usual target language, chapter four is typically where we open part two of a four-part TV story, with part one, in Terrence's terms, almost always concluding with the end of chapter three. Five Doctors, though broadcast as a single 90-minute movie, did have a four-part edit, aired in the UK in the summer of 84, and then sent on to the States, where I first saw it, as we discussed in the cold open. The part one edit ends with Sarah rolling down a gentle grassy slope, and the part two reprise includes a very long second Doctor Brigadier scene before you even get back to the cliffhanger moment. In the book, Terence has Sarah trip over a ravine described as, quote, bottomless, a deep fissure in the earth, page 42. When the third doctor rescues her on the following page, he is, quote, visibly appalled by Sarah's description of his future fourth self as, quote, all teeth and curls, Sarah's line in the book, John Pertwee's line on TV. Terence, for all his writer skills, sometimes struggles with big emotional moments. There's a take of the fifth doctor Susan reunion, a single-scene reunion in the special edition, which shows the two actors staring at each other and smiling fondly for an awfully long time, not included by director Peter Moffat in the TV edit. Terence handles this reunion with only a single line of text, page 48. He, the Davison doctor, quote, smiled affectionately at Susan, a face from the past so far away it hardly seemed real. Terence includes the scene where the first doctor orders Tegan to serve food, includes it, I say, as if he's doing it passively. This was his TV script, he conceived it and wrote it. This ends up causing much pain years later, such as on the first Doctor's scripted dialogue in Twice Upon a Time in 2017. The Chapter 5 scene where Barusa dismisses the Castellan and Flavia from the debate chamber goes on for one line of dialogue longer in the book than in the TV edit. The special edition reinstates this line. There is on TV the nice little detail of Philip Latham putting his hand on the harp of Rassilon, which makes it Chekhov's harp, or the harp of Chekhov. Terence does not include that little bit of business in the book. Chapter 6 is missing Peter Moffat's close-up of Richard Herndahl enjoying a slice of pineapple. I really wish a way had been found for David Bradley to do this in Twice Upon a Time, although Bradley did film an extra scene in connection with an adventure in space and time, where he enjoyed a flute of champagne while reenacting the Happy Christmas to all of you at home bit from the Feast of Stephen, while misquoting the actual dialogue itself. A Merry Christmas to all of you at home. In Chapter 7 of the novelization, the First Doctor is actually happy when Tegan offers to accompany him on his mission to the Dark Tower, Following the Fifth Doctor transmitting back to the capital, the old man actually smiled, Terence writes. Following Tegan's observation, the old boy might be tetchy and domineering. The word tetchy appears an awful lot in this book, possibly because, if I recall correctly, my copy was lost along with most of my Who collection over the winter. That word appears in the program guide summary of an unearthly child. Tetchy and domineering, Tegan observes in the book, but you had to admire his spirit. But on TV, the line that Richard Herndahl delivers sounds a little bit different. Well, with our young friend gone, I shall have to go to the Dark Tower. I'll come with you. Oh. Oh, well, if you must. 
In the special edition, of course, Herndahl follows that up with an extra line, Thank you, my dear. That's the only place of the three versions of the story, the TV edit, the special edition, and the novelization, where Herndahl actually delivers both of those lines. And that is the conclusion of part one of my audio essay on the novelization of The Five Doctors. Next time on Doctor Who Literature, part two of The Five Doctors, and we are joined by a very special guest from the Doctor Who family herself, Elizabeth Morton, an actor, a writer, wife of Peter Davison, mother-in-law of David Tennant, a novelist, and she's talking to us about her newest novel, The Orphans from Liverpool Lane. And she will also share for us many warm reminiscences of her time living in literally Doctor Who's household. Very excited to feature my Elizabeth Morton interview next week, courtesy of Pan Macmillan Books. Next week, we will also have a three-panelist guest discussion of Five Doctors, the TV episode itself. Is this Doctor Who's greatest episode of all time? The answer may surprise you. And, of course, part two of my look at the novelization of The Five Doctors, chapters 8 through 12. That's next time on Doctor Who Literature. Thank you for joining me on another episode of the Doctor Who a Literature podcast. This podcast is produced by David Barsky, Jim Sangster, and yours truly. This week's episode was written and edited by me. Our logo was designed by Jim Sangster. Special thanks to my special guest, James Couray-Smith. This podcast can be found on most of your podcast apps of choice. You can find all past episodes at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Doctor Who Lit. It really helps if you rate five stars and subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Doctor Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels, and on email at Doctor Who Literature, that's DR Who Literature at gmail.com. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages. Doctor Who Podcast Network.